0: Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talks Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. If you'd like to see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com, subscribe on iTunes or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: In episode seven of Agent Carter, entitled Snafu, the male spies of the fictional SSR wonder aloud how on earth Peggy Carter got the better of them when they discover that she had been secretly conducting her own investigations right under their noses. Agent Carter responds, I conducted my own investigation because no one listens to me. I got away with it because no one looks at me. Because unless I have your reports, your coffee, or your lunch, I'm invisible. This line represents a confluence of ideas raised in the series, from feminism and espionage to ideas of what makes a hero. But is Agent Carter truly an espionage show, or is it a superhero show? Is it feminist, and where does it fit into Marvel's omnipresent pop culture universe? On the podcast this week... I'm Alex O'Season, <laughs> delivering a supervillain monologue. I'm Matthew Campbell, and I'm ready
0: to
2: comply. I'm Abby Blythe, and God is in the details. I'm Charlotte Botfield, and my joke is classified.
0: Okay, so... Um, I'll confess. I mean, the first thing that I thought about when when he's when he suggested this program, that um, I mean, I wasn't so certain, right? I mean, I kind of saw it as a bit of a kind of adventure thing and everything else, but you know, I gave it a chance. Might have binge watched it over kind of <laughs> four days or four days or so. But I think one of the first things, and probably the reason I gave it a chance in the first place, is is, is you suggested that actually this would be the first um, the first kind of science fiction work, as it were, that was was set prior to the time it was written. Um, I mean, what is it that you find
1: interesting about that possibility? So, I mean, so anyone who's listened to a lot of these knows that one of the clichés I bring up is the idea of what science fiction is for. And um, In a sort of Ray Bradbury sense, he always said that you know, science fiction is stories of what might be, and it's this sandbox for us to play in what humanity could be in the future or in an alternate reality. Now, that looks... Fundamentally strange when you set science fiction in the past, Bradbury's alternate phrase being stories of what might have been. Now, you can argue over whether Agent Carter is meant to be a secret history or an alternate history, but it's fundamentally strange to try and perform an experiment of fiction with an era which should kind of already be set. And yet, increasingly, a lot of science fiction does this. This is the explosion of steampunk and deco-punk and diesel-punk and every other type of punk that would make William Gibson weep. Um, yeah I find it quite funny that
0: a lot of these um, I mean we can call them counterfactual histories or you know something similar um, one of one of my favourite I mean it's one of the things that uh, the film of Watchmen did so well was the introduction right so you have Bob Dylan singing the times are changing and um, you know the assassination of JFK and all of that kind of thing um, I mean one of the strange things about this though is that it doesn't portray a particular event that we're familiar with which is normally the hook right i mean what it actually seems to do instead is kind of portray a different vision of a particular time
2: with a
3: lot of these alternate histories though it's not impossible it could have happened i does much happen in agent carter that if one were to write history in such a way you couldn't just get round
1: i think agent carter's got a curious agenda in the so there's the opening scene where they have the housemate who's... She's a Rosie the Riveter. And they're talking about how the Rosies are getting laid off because GIs are getting demobbed and coming back and working in factories. And this is really weird in that that's absolutely spot-on history that is completely absent from the pop culture. And so in many ways, it's doing real history that we don't know, mm-hmm. which is really confusing. And I mean, what I don't know what you think of how it portrays post-World War Two America, but...
3: I, well, for a start, I mean, it's just far too clean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> beautiful clothes. I mean, right, that so, makes it science fiction. <laughs> or Singapore. We're not sure. I've got to be honest, I'm not an expert on New York post World War II, but the clothes are beautiful. Everything's far too clean. And I kind of feel like they just, I don't know how much rationing there was in America. It wasn't mm-hmm. much at all. I don't know, but. The idea that all these women would have beautiful clothes that are always mm-hmm. clean is not historically accurate.
1: So this is, and so World War Two now to pop culture is is the good war, right?
3: Yeah, there's this idea that the the war was a great thing. Um, nationalism is great. Um, it 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 is our embodiment of of America or Britain. You know, this is what made us us. Directly at 1914, direct sorry 1946, directly after the war. I don't think that this sort of mindset was quite as fixed as it is today. In fact, it, I know it wasn't as fixed as it was today.
0: Is that a peculiarly American conceit, though, in the sense that the the things that got damaged, the the, the things that belong to belong to America, but you know, the the American things that got damaged during the war were people, right? And yeah. and it addresses that to some length, not as much as I would have liked, but it it does. Um. And therefore it allows mythologizing through narrative and things like that in the same way that is perhaps held back a little bit when you're confronted by the ruins of Coventry Cathedral or yeah.
3: I think that's definitely a point. I mean, obviously Maine America was never directly targeted during the war by, by bombs and the like. So you don't physically have the ruins of the Empire State Building to impact on the mindset. So that is a true, um, but I think you see the same thing in Britain to an extent, and of course, Britain was badly damaged by the bomb, so I, I think is, to an extent you're right, but it's not the whole thing.
0: Do you think, I mean, it's a particular era of, or, um, I mean, if we're seeing that revisionism comes in waves, as it were, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think the way I was seeing it from the open scene where she walks in, in that, frankly, Fabulous outfit,
1: yeah.
0: You know, was very much a kind of post Mad Men idea of the consumer boom that followed the Second World War. Well, actually, it's probably a little bit earlier for the consumer boom, but all the clothes were definitely, you yeah. You know, but this is the
3: thing; it's 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 too soon. I mean, this is purely just a few months after the end of the war. The war ends in August nineteen forty-five. It's what spring nineteen forty-six. I mean, we we literally just finished
1: they're still demobbing yeah. the army yeah, it's, still yeah all
3: the it's, it's not even really post world war ii i mean i mean obviously the date is finished but it's not actually it, we're, not, we're not talking about nineteen fifty four here we're talking about a few months later
1: hmm. so it's i mean we talked about mythologizing and to me there's an interesting mythology of science going on right oh definitely so this is this is the decopunk problem of there's, there's, there's the idea of science as being inherently aspirational, which, which brings into the Marvel Universe in that Howard Stark's originally picked up as this hero who created the atomic bomb, which as a statement is just incredibly complicated. Does he create it in that he, he, he was, he was part of one of the major scientists of the Manhattan Project. Right, okay.
3: uh-huh. Is that how um, him and Agent Carter got to know each other?
1: Well, the, when they were working at SSR during the Captain America thing, and okay. he's making all this fantastic technology, which is great from an American dream, science's fantastic point of view, The two problems are, one, is that fundamentally unrealistic and problematic, but two, that's not how we as modern writers and consumers view science. And so Howard Stark becomes this odd character where he's from a setting where he's a good guy, written in an era where scientists are bad guys. Well, certainly a lot more
0: unpredictable, right? I think that one of the weird things about Howard Stark's character and maybe, maybe it's just the framing of the plot is that everything's a super weapon <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. I mean you know the, the little boy and fat man just become kind of one amongst the many selections of you know possible super weapons and I, I, I think in some ways that's a superhero problem right that's to say that when you have a superhero then you need a super weapon for them to fight against because bullets don't do it anymore Right And actually, I think what Agent Carter did in, in some regards, actually, now I think about it, probably not as well as Watchmen did, is they turned their major super scientist guy, right, some kind of allegory for Venavon Von Braun or, or whatever, into a weapon. Right, Captain Man, uh, Doctor Manhattan in, in Watchmen is, is a super weapon, right? You know, Tony Stark is a super weapon. And and half the show turns out to be about the fight over Howard's
1: technology. Howard's technology and also Howard himself. Right. We we end up with this. So that's the early line of well, it's only a theory, but frankly, I made it so it works. And then as the series goes on, basically everything that Howard Stark made is a lot of it doesn't work and is horribly dangerous. But I
0: mean, oddly, that's weirdly a kind of if 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 we look at it, it didn't consider um, things like VT rockets and stuff in the program, but. Um, I mean, that's a reversal of what was actually the case, right? I mean, in, in in the space race, the American rocket technology was the product of a huge number of extremely talented scientists working intensely together. Um, and was it Polyakov, the Russian... Uh, who, whoever the Russian kind of equivalent of Vernon von Braun was, was basically on his own, figuring yeah. it out all on his own. But the idea that things can be designed by committee is not something that fits into the American ethos of industrialist yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: But I think that's something that Agent Carter does throughout. I mean it's got, you know, Peggy is she can solve this all by herself and she's really capable and she is really capable.
0: There's someone who can decipher a one-time cipher pad by looking at it. Uh, <laughs> looking at it and saying yeah, you, I haven't it. you
2: haven't turned I'm it into Russia. Yeah. <laughs> <Wow. laughs> but I th- I think I think it's, you know, it's showing like the lone wolf mentality of actually only one person can go off and save the world and you don't need a team of people. And it's actually something that a lot of the intelligent spy dramas struggle with is they just seem to have you know james bond's the really obvious example it's just one person going off and they don't need anybody we can, i can save the world myself
1: it's so also the case with spooks john snow edition as well he's he's the lone rogue agent it's jason bourne yeah Jason in haywire yeah oh abs-
2: yeah all of them you know but, um eliza manning and bullet who was you know the, one of the former heads of mi5 Actually, criticizes a lot of spy dramas for this reason, because she says it's not just one person going off and stopping a bomb in, you know, Times Square or Trafalgar Square, which has got 30 seconds left. It's a team of people behind the scenes, and that's a lot.
3: Less interesting. It is. It is. Which is
2: probably why they're portrayed as the lone wolves, as they are. in a whole
3: room just full of a committee and people arguing for six months. I mean, I mean, it would be (laughs) interesting. That's that's almost what
1: happens, though, right? (laughs) Peggy is is the randian hero who goes off and does things, and everyone else discusses photographs at their desks. But does this therefore mean that the superhero genre and a realistic spy genre are fundamentally incompatible? Because If we view superheroes as the lone person power fantasy, one person can change the world, then that broadens our idea of superheroes to include those who don't overtly have powers, the Bruce Waynes of this world, the Peggy Carters of this world. In that sense, Peggy is a superhero, and Agent Carter is a superhero show. But I'd have thought that fundamentally excludes it from being a realistic espionage show, if realism is applicable in a world of Captain America and The Incredible Hulk. I I think it's about
0: framing the marketing, right? Although interestingly, we'll follow up on this later. But one thing I want to say is that the, despite the fact that one of the show's main selling points was on its feminism, mm-hmm. it's a very particular kind of feminism, <laughs> right? It's it's kind of the uh, equal abilities feminism. Now I I don't know the specific waves of feminism. I know there's, what three or four. Um, I I can't remember the order they came in, but I mean it kind of missed the. I mean it hinted towards the double day of labor. In the sense that she was going out and fighting crime at night, as it were, um, but didn't make that a point because, by although it does in some way allow Jarvis to become a hero, but if Jarvis is a hero, well, so so is Alfred in Batman. He's the I mean, he's the he's the sidekick supporter, right? Right. I mean, I, but I think if you're going to look at it in a more kind of dare I say a holistic um, <laughs> kind of sense, then they're heroes too, right? Yeah. Oh, with
2: that's what I was going to say. Um, how do you get a real, how do you know if you've got a real life espionage drama? Because it's espionage. So, probably
3: the whole because point, it's boring. Yeah. This is the
2: problem we had with the First World War, which
3: I studied the espionage during the First World War. And mm-hmm. much of the espionage on the Western Front and in the Eastern Front, just in Europe in general, was watching trains, train timetables. Yeah. Now, you know, if you can turn that into a sexy, glamorous show, go ahead, I'd be, Pretty chuffed,
2: um, but it's going to be hard. Well, it's, it's implied yeah. that this is
1: Peggy's desk job, and that she reads reports, she translates codes, yeah. and then she files. But
2: them. those are the really important things. Yeah, that's the day to day. That's the, the day to day, really important stuff that needs yeah. to happen. But the point, I, you know, the point I'm ca- kind of trying to uh, attempt to make is that because of espionage, so much is secret. So how are we ever going to know if we've got a real life? depiction in a fictitious portrayal because we know so little about what's actually going on. I mean, if you try and do it in a historical sense, you might be more like more likely to because you'll get more... To an extent, you can get... To an extent, more yeah, there's sources, you know, there's more information available and that's been declassified. I mean, you have
3: more problems there is
2: the difficulty
3: of collecting your moral histories and then just the loss of sources over yeah. time. So yeah, it's very um, surrounded. Does this,
1: I mean, this is your research, but yeah. does this become a problem for intelligence services in that if you say female spy, people think Peggy Carter in Black Widow is of Stella Remington. Is it a problem that our version of intelligence <laughs> is so absent, or is that helpful to them?
2: Ask me that question once I've done field work. <laughs> yeah. um, I would say it's both helpful and a hindrance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as well, if... I think who you ask, who's your, who's the most well-known female spy... It depends who you're talking to.
3: It's Blackwood. I um, think most people wouldn't even know a female spy. Personally. No, I I, I,
2: you I don't know, think, I think, I I don't, don't mention
3: a Bond girl, probably. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, was Stella Remington the first to be?
2: Yeah, she was the first head of MI5. And there's only been female heads of MI5. GCHQ and MI6 have never had female heads, um, which I could talk about, and that raises a lot of interesting questions. Um, but that's a kind of a, a side point, really.
1: But this, I mean, this transitions neatly. Hooray segue to the idea of gender and intelligence. It does. Because this this is one of Agent Carter's primary ideas. And the one it pulls off arguably the best is the idea of the invisibility of gender being an advantage for spies. Yeah.
2: Um, and it's actually something that I had a paper given on at a conference last week um, by Jess Shahan, which was really interesting from Aberystwyth University, about the role of women in intelligence and how the, how they've moved up and how that's changed mm. over time. And nowadays, women, there are more women within the intelligence services. We've just seen a report from the Intelligence and Security Committee, which is the oversight body, just about women in the intelligence services. Mm -hmm. So it's something they're taking more interest, more, Um, they're looking at more and more. But what Peggy Carter represents is being the lone woman in that service and having to fight and fight and fight to be at the same level as the men when she is just as capable is something that Stella Remington does actually talk about in her autobiography. It's something that she had to go through as well.
3: Wasn't Stella Remington the one who actually wasn't a spy to begin with? She was the wife of somebody. And the only reason yeah. she got into MI5 in the first place is because she um, gossiped with the wives of other um, world leaders who were almost all male, of course. And she then reported back. So she yeah, was her... invisible. The, all, all the women were invisible. And the fact that they were gossiping was not picked up by anybody else. Is, is this... It's
1: I mean, is this, uh, this is something that's being attempted to transfer to the audience, but is this successful? Does a modern audience of Agent Carter sit there and go, oh, the 40s were such a backward time and not realise this is a inherent problem with I modern think, workplaces? Yeah, I
3: mean, this is the problem I had with Agent Carter, is that it's very much, this is 70 years ago now, and I, I thought anybody watching this who didn't have a good grasp of history because they hadn't studied it at university mm-hmm. would think, oh, the 70s, uh, so 70 years ago it was so awful, poor women but it's fine now, and I—I I don't mean this is an issue with Agent Carter specifically because I have no issue with setting things in the past. But I think it's there's been no modern day similar program that I can think of that accurately shows the discrimination that to this day women have in the workplace
0: well this I mean this is quite a common thing you get kind of nostalgia over the class system right yeah you know it's upstairs downstairs
1: it's uh the other one is that your salient memory of Downton abbey that they killed the dog I didn't know sure. I just read about I just read about it
0: um you know but you, you get that kind of you get that kind of nostalgia but I mean in some ways, that's also kind of not the point, right? Because I think it is entirely possible to watch Asian culture as just an action
3: thing, mm, yeah,
0: right. But who's it trying to speak to, right? I mean, if if you know, if, if men watch it and they just see an action thing and they think, oh, you know, the forties were pretty crap for women, but you know, we've we've got that sorted now, um, you know. But th- that's not the audience in that case, is it? You know, the audience are the people that recognize it for what it is.
3: So it's almost like you're preaching to the converted.
0: Well, I mean, to a great... But you're always preaching to the converted to some extent, right? Yeah. I mean, but the the, the argument to be made is that, well, you know, maybe there is someone who recognises, well, hang on a second. I think it's... You know, I, you know, there's two or three times a day that I get asked to make coffee or...
3: I, I, I think it's, you, can definitely, you, you can definitely watch it today and, and perhaps see that you treated somebody like that or you're being treated like that. So I think you can definitely still use it in a modern context. I just think it would be useful and interesting if marvel or anybody would make a drama today that accurately predicted which they don't I'm, well, i've not seen it well anyway. i think i
0: mean the problem the problem in the, yeah. the problem in the context of agent carter is that they do treat her as an individual mm. right i mean she doesn't have any kind of vague sense of solidarity with the woman that lets her in her office every morning right it's very much the kind of well feminism is you being able to take part in the
1: Race to the top. They 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 never measure everyone's paychecks at seventy seven cents compared to the dollar, right? And that's a
0: and so there's no group identity in it whatsoever. You know, I I I I think that there might be some alternate version of this somewhere where she has a chat with her counterpart Dotty. Yeah, Dotty. You know, and they recognise
1: just how similar they are. <laughs> you know, in the, in the, in the, in that sense. But I mean. Well, this, this this makes sense that the, the evil Russians and, and their school for female assassins makes them more progressive by that measurement because yeah. the KGB slash Hydra have apparently realised that female assassins are tremendously useful, whereas the Allies and the Strategic Scientific Reserve happen to have Peggy and haven't clocked onto this.
3: Although using them as, as as like educating women then employing women is good in, to an extent but if they're using women because they know they won't be recognized and surely they're just formalizing women's subjection to men yes i mean it's, yeah. it's, it's
1: fundamentally if feminism is about by definition deconstructing and or overthrowing a patriarchy yes, that then isn't feminism, creating yeah. a team of assassins who take advantage of the patriarchy but don't overthrow it isn't feminism That's by that feminist, definition no. but that also runs us straight back to the problem of superheroes in the if it's about the lone hero, mm-hmm. can they ever enact societal change? I mean, John Galt can, but that's a John Galt, the terrible hero of Atlas Shrugged, from where we get Randy in Heroes, um, is the lone hero who overthrows an entire society. But while Peggy is feminist and Agent Carter is arguably a feminist show, the idea is that the other action heroes will recognize her quality and that will enact change there's no attempt to have Peggy stand up and say, hey, how about universal suffrage or equal pay? And the complete lack of people of color mean that Peggy doesn't address segregation. Or, or Stan, uh, Stan Lee in his shoeshine. Stan, uh, Stan Lee in his
0: shoeshine, yeah. It's it's a terrible... I I think this comes back to this this very uh, liberal individualist conception of what that's about, right? And And, and that is that It's heavily implied, you know, whether by the radio show um, or anything else, that Peggy is a kind of uh, at-home, stay-at-home version of of Captain America. She's Captain Britain, Right. And the only times where that's recognised in the programme is when other heroes recognise her as Mm -hmm. such. You know, it comes about two ways. Either she gets recognised by another hero the 107th commandos and, and and so and so on or when one of the guys gets emasculated <laughs> and and so i i find that a little bit concerning in some ways i mean it, it is a very kind of superhero thing to do right you know it's, it's only some people that can recognize the you know the kind of
1: great soul that is peter parker and spider-man and, and so and so on i think i mean i think Carter carter's doing something subtler in the the agents who accept her. So one of its ideas is that patriarchy requires a performance from male characters as much as it requires—not as much, but it does require a performance I don't from male know characters.
3: Sometimes it can be as much.
1: But there's so there's Victor who has a crutch and is therefore visibly injured by World War II and cannot mm. perform the image of the perfect man. And then there's Agent mm. Thompson who tells Peggy to get coffee and do his do his filing. And then it transpires, of course, that he's traumatized by the war in the episode where they go to Russia and there's machine guns and explosions and everything. Mm. And that's portrayed as the turning point episode of the series in how Thompson and the rest of the agents accept Peggy. But it's subtle in that that's also the episode where Thompson fails to perform masculinity successfully. And in the now that Peggy has seen the real him, there's almost no point in him enforcing that view of masculinity on her.
2: Well, I think as well, that's the episode where you actually... Can start to differentiate between all the male agents in the program, because I mean, we, you, and I've had this conversation before. Of they just seem to all blur into one, and you couldn't. Apart we struggled
3: of, to remember we, the names yeah. of certain yeah, characters. Yeah, we could, we couldn't Still do it. Do. Well, this, is, <laughs> this is the thing: is that feminism is not just a woman's thing; it's a man's no. thing because both men and women are subjected to the patriarchy. Men have got to be strong, and women have got to be weak in this idea. And I think it's interesting the midway point where you can suddenly differentiate between mm-hmm. the men because whilst the men see Agent Carter as just a woman, the audience has just perceived the men as all just men and just the same, when actually they're all very different people. So I think it's useful in that it shows feminism as both a male and a female thing, and not just a, a female. Thing.
2: I think as well it shows how deep seated deep seated it is because despite them actually seeing um, Peggy as a you know, as a person who is capable when they're out in Belarus and, you know, she sa- she saves all their lives. Um, when the end, when they're interrogating her and they say, don't make us do what, you know, we're capable of, they seem to have this... In- they can't bring themselves to interrogate her as they would do if it was Jarvis sat there. Yeah. And you see that in the case with Dottie. They know she's a trained assassin, but they can't bring themselves to shoot her when they have the chance in the building opposite the SSR headquarters. Um, and it's Peggy who throws her out a window in the final episode.
1: Is that because it's acceptable for Peggy to enact violence because she's a woman enacting violence on a woman, or is that because Peggy's the hero and doesn't have this weakness? Because there's a very real extent to which you can imagine a network being hesitant of...
2: A male... A male hero beating the crap out of a female Oh, completely. But the only reason reason
3: that Peggy isn't shot beforehand is because she's a woman. So... If it had been a man, they would have just shot him. So I think whilst they do want Agent Carter to be the hero and to be the one that takes them down, they would have gone about it in a different way if Agent Carter was a man. Definitely.
1: So you had the interesting point that Peggy's worth is still measured as if men are the yardstick.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, this is the thing. So Agent Carter seems to me just like a normal-bodied woman. Now, I don't know much about Marvel Comics, but I'm told that she's not a, she doesn't have you know, super strength or anything. But it's pretty much every episode, actually. She takes down lots of men and this is actually noted at one point the bit where she's been they they found out that she's a double agent and she runs away and she manages to beat up a few men and one of the other men says how did she manage to take down all of you and it's just sort of brushed off but if she's a if she's just a normal woman she would not have the strength to take down multiple men over a short enough, course of a very few days and i kind of a bit feel a bit like well she is a woman clearly but they've masculized her um, in order to be able to portray her
1: well, in terms of fighting skill, a lot of it is combat training, in that she could. Mm. But I think my problem with that is that her worth—it's not that someone like Peggy couldn't take down male agents; they absolutely could if they were oh, sufficiently she could. trained. could,
3: yeah. So but like, her, yeah. her
1: worth is still being measured in terms of the fact that she men can do, yeah, yeah. That, that's that what she... makes her a hero. She's a woman, but she can beat up this many
3: men. men. That's, that's, that, that's still my point, a, yeah. 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 Just you know, a bit I like, think there's
1: a deeper mm. point to this though, and that, and
0: that—I mean—to bring it back to the Captain America thing again, particularly. In, in Peggy's case, she's, she's not a superhero, but she is because she's Captain America, right? Now, you, know, you have that with the radio program playing over the background and all of that kind of stuff. Now, the point is Captain America isn't a man. Captain America is a principle, right? And actually some of the nicer bits of the show are the processes by which you see Captain America beginning to be mythologized. Right as an idea, and that's precisely—it's indicate that that's precisely what gives her the conviction. And then you know you can derive effectively being pretty good in a fight from conviction or drugs, but you know in this case it's conviction. You know, and I—I I, I think that it's—it's it's, it's kind of strange that even when they see—and—and and this is a really oddly religious moment in the program when they see Steve Rogers' blood, they all go gaga, <laughs> which. Is, is quite strange. And I, I think that it's something that we haven't necessarily considered up to this point and that that's it's not necessarily a superhero program, but it's
1: a program set in a world where superheroes exist. I think this relates to... So the guys that make extra credits, um, Daniel Floyd and James Fortnow, talk about America's fundamentally unique attitude to heroism. And... Despite having a British lead and a British sidekick, Agent is fundamentally American. And they argue that, due to its relative age, most of the mythologizing of national identities is very, very old. If you think about the Asian mythology's internalizing skill, or Captain Britain in the comics wields Excalibur. These are very ancient ideas. But America, being a very young country, does not have a national heroism mythology that predates the existence of the gun. This fundamentally changes what their heroes look like. Because in Americana, American heroes have moral rectitude. And they're made heroes by being given a tool to allow them to become powerful. Usually a gun. normal person with sufficient bravery can pick up a gun and therefore become a patriot. And this fundamentally bears itself out in heroes like Captain America. And it also comes to represent who Peggy is. Peggy works for the SSR. She has the opportunity. What makes her a hero is actually her moral stance.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that you see, I mean, to push that point a little bit further, what you see in things like Captain America, in sometimes a semi-satirical way, but often played way too seriously for my liking, is the basis of a national myth. Right? Captain America is a national myth. Um, and, and you see that formulated in a way that perhaps was exactly the case when the Mabinogi was composed or Beowulf was composed or, you know, whatever else. But fundamentally not. Now, the thing that allows Captain America to be about the idea is the fact that Captain America's superpower is the ability to stop bullets.
1: Which isn't a superpower, but it's something he's particularly good at doing. I disagree, because the weird thing that happened with Captain America is that the opposite occurred. Because he's he's too American for the writers. So... He, he literally wears the American flag as a costume, and therefore you'd expect him to be this epitome hero. Whereas during the Cold War, Marvel did have a hero who did nothing but beat up Nazis and communists. It wasn't Captain America, it was Iron Man. Captain America, if anything, has been Marvel's historically one of the most subversive heroes. He spent his time disagreeing with what America does and resigning because he doesn't like the government. Yeah, but disagreeing with what America does, not what America is.
0: Okay, that's an interesting point. Which is, you know, he's, he's precisely the embodiment of that idea right now i mean howard stark is precisely in some ways the opposite of that howard stark is what america does i almost said how yeah not tony stark tony stark. they're the same character uh, well i mean but this is i mean this is an interesting thing that it allows them to stage all kinds of things i mean comics typically you know opens a retconning reboots and all the rest of it i mean what it allows them to do is maintain some continuity right you know along the lines of the theme that captain america is a man out of time by being able to go back and maintain precisely that storyline, right? You know, and, and Howard Stark is, you know, uh, working on the Manhattan Project. You know, he's Oppenheimer, he's, you know, whoever, right? And and I was, I was reading this really interesting thing the other day, and it was an account of the nuclear tests that were done at Bikini Atoll and, and so and so on. And the one that everyone remembers is... I think it was Oppenheimer claiming I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, right? From the is it from the Bhagavad Gita? Yeah. Um the um you know, Hindi mythology. Um but almost precisely at the same time, um someone else on a some miles away invoked Faust by saying seeing the explosion and saying, My God, I believe the long haired boys have lost control. Now Howard Stocks, both of those, right? You know, he doesn't necessarily have a, have a kind of Faustian bargain, but at the same time, you know, he's that profound instability because he's also America's greatest idea of progress, right? You know, that's what America offered to the world in the form of industrialism and Fordism and all of these things.
1: It's curious because Agent Carter is fundamentally a program about mistakes and leftovers. So the Iron Man films and Howard Stark and the Captain America films represent what could be in the future. Whereas the plot of Agent Carter is fundamentally about cleaning up the mess left from the past. All the junk Howard Stark had in his vault. Leftovers were weapons from World War II. Rogue agents who were part of a Russian program to train schoolgirls. Which is interesting, because I I think that was
0: definitely part of the kind of high-level discourse in America at the time. right? Particularly after the use of nuclear weapons. What didn't necessarily happen... um, Or, or sorry, what didn't happen was that it didn't necessarily enter public discourse until yeah. the MR.
2: Yeah, I think linked to that as well, it's it's just occurred to me, you know, there's this very much anti-Russian thread that runs throughout the programme. And, you know, when, when they go f- go into Belarus, they have to go in very covertly and not tell anyone. But the Iron Curtain and, you know, the, the massive Axis differentiation occurred a bit later than right after the war. You know, even right after the war, There were factions between the US and the UK and Russia, without a doubt, but it wasn't quite as stark as... The fate
3: over when the Cold War starts. Um, Quite a few people put it pre-World War II, but I mean, it's whether you'd call the, the Cold War when it starts in the government or when it starts on the streets
0: yeah I mean that's basically, I mean the, the question I mean it more than often comes down
1: to the question of whether Stalin was the Cold War right yeah. <laughs> well Dr. Sherry Hughes of our university makes the flippant point the Cold War begins in 1917 yeah. yeah it's the point at which all the secret communiques this comes back to secret intelligence the point at which they're all declassified mm-hmm. is the point at which what becomes the Allies and what becomes the Soviet Union become fundamentally irreconcilable it's a problem that starts in 1917 it's a problem that starts with the intelligence services
3: mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
1: I don't know if I'd agree with that characterization, but I don't think it's a stretch to have Agent Carter running around especially within the wider Marvel universe when the spy agencies are run by secret spy agencies which are in turn run by even more secret spy agencies I don't think it's a stretch to have a Cold War mentality unless that's a product of modern spy fiction imprinting on mm. World War II spy fiction
3: I would say it was to an extent I mean I, mean, I agree that I think 1917 is a good date to start the Cold War, but the idea with the whole secret spies with the secret spies with the secrets with the whole thing with the secret spies with the secret spies with the secret spies is quite a, a much later
2: sixties, yeah. seventies. I think anything. that comes around with you know the Cambridge Five, who yeah. were moles within British intelligence who were working for the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um and and Agent Carter does address double agents, triple agents, quadruple agents. And it places quite a lot of emphasis on them which is quite interesting because although you have, um, you know, occasions where they have it, Cambridge Five, Oleg Penkovsky and Oleg Gordievsky, both from Russia coming to the UK being, you know, really good examples, they're few and far between, you know, they're not an everyday occurrence within intelligence.
3: But even even in, in, in novels that I can think of, you have double spies, double yeah, agents, yeah, yeah. and this is a really common thing in narratives, fictional narratives, um, non-fiction narratives. I mean, look at the Cambridge Five. this is a, a really popular topic for people to study, but it actually takes up a very small part of British history.
2: yeah, without a doubt.
3: so I think possibly going back to the whole can we have interesting spy movies that are accurate?
2: It's just that oversexing the yeah. topic because it's so boring and, yeah. and and focusing upon what is seems to be you know the really interesting stuff yeah. and it is the really interesting stuff without a doubt, but it's just, it's only interesting because it happens so rarely is yeah.
0: it is it why you study spies?
1: Is that the hook?
2: it's double it is, agents? Or...
3: Right.
1: So if 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 so, we have two espionage people in the room. We almost had. There were more we could have picked from another part. There are more, but we can't see them. Yeah. <laughs> and the question is. And also, I'm did... I'm also secretly a intelligence person. <laughs> I'm a double PhD. Student. Um, if it is the case that the reason you study intelligence is because of these rare but interesting things, can we blame pop culture for doing that too? Or are you genuinely into espionage for the dull bits? I'm genuinely
3: interested in it, to be honest. But I'm quite a dull
2: person, so there we are. (laughs) If if I'm being brutally honest, what started... One of the things, sorry, that started my interest in this stuff was watching Spooks as a teenager, being brutally honest. However, the more I've learned about it, the more I've seen that's not actually realistic or anything like that. And I think the, the dull bits are, to me, one of the most interesting. Because if the dull bits aren't done it all falls to pieces so, so you need you need the dull bits to happen you need you know going back to what Charlotte was saying about you know, espionage in World War One. you need people to look at the train timetables you need people to notice those things because that's that's the important stuff that leads to the bigger picture does, intelligence to me is you know it's, it's having a jigsaw and you're putting all the pieces of the jigsaw together to get the big picture
1: which is actually something Agent Carter gets right in that if at any point all of the good guys had assembled everything they'd known yeah. if Howard Peggy Thompson and Victor had all been in the same room and been honest with each other, they'd have cracked it almost immediately. Yeah, pretty much. So they get it absolutely right in that it's five blind men holding different parts of an elephant. Mm -hmm. But to reflect slightly backwards, does this mean that in five, ten years, we're going to have a generation of people coming into intelligence studies inspired by Peggy Carter and Natasha Romanoff? And One interesting point is that intelligence studies remains fundamentally a very male sphere of academia. Oh yes, okay. and does that mean that Agent Carter is therefore potentially very helpful to academia in that we'll get a bunch of inspired people from a slightly different background?
2: You, I was just going to say, you may get you know an inspired bunch of people, but then they might come in thinking that they can go around and beat loads of people up because that's what Peggy Carter does. But and, isn't
0: I mean, isn't that one of the key points of? I mean, we're all international politics students, right? A lot of what we spend our time doing when we teach undergraduates is teaching kind of kids that are going to go into the military and everything else that they aren't action man. Um, You know, and I imagine that, you know, just as I spend a lot of my time teaching political theory students that they're probably not Lenin, and and so and so on, right? Among, yeah, yeah. you know, it probably carries, you know, Matt isn't Florence Nightingale, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. and you know, it, it probably carries on in that way, right? I mean, you know, there's a oh, particular yeah. arrogance that we
2: there is, but I mean, the you know, intel- the intelligence sphere is massively male dominated. I mean, we, you and I, Charlotte and I attended a um, intelligence conference last week, and that was really heavily male dominated. I think with this, that you've got to think, are they actually going to watch it?
3: people to yeah. study intelligence so we had this discussion about actually the availability of this program in the united kingdom but i mean i i chose to do intelligence not because i'd actually watched stuff about it just because i'd grown an interest from it naturally from my other studies so i think it's perhaps too much of a leap to suggest that just because this tv show has shown that in 10 years time we're suddenly going to get hordes of students who think that that women can run around beating people up as spies
1: so this, this was one of them
2: i was gonna say it comes down to the availability of such programs you know i would say you know james bond is is one that has gone global completely and utterly and you know you'd be hard-pressed to meet someone who hasn't heard of james bond but equally how many people have heard of Peggy Carter. How many? It's mean, quite niche, isn't it? It is. It is quite niche. So, I, you know, you I think... I have an interest, really, to watch it in the first place, I should think, with most people. Yeah. I
1: mean, this is one of the deep paradoxes we've ended up with, in that Marvel's owned by Disney, so, of course, they know what they're doing, and they now rule the world of Disney pop Disney knows what they're doing. House yeah. of Mouse, owned, House of Mouse <laughs> rule all. And this is the first thing Marvel had done which wasn't headlined by a white guy. And it was also, in my opinion, and a lot of the critics' opinions... The best thing Marvel had done. It maybe wasn't as fun as Guardians of the Galaxy, but in terms of quality and having a point, it was easily the best. And yet it's been strangely unpopular. It only just got recommissioned for a second series. It was on the chopping block for a long time. And And this is weird because some of Marvel's biggest-selling heroes are diverse. Mm -hmm. Spider-Gwen, Kamala Khan, comic book world, they're doing great progress, but their cinematic world...
3: I think this might go back a bit to the point I made earlier about how women are still subjected today in, in the workplace the fact that this isn't a white man headlining it is almost headline news in itself which is a bit We're odd a
1: meta headline
3: yeah, yeah. Mm.
1: well the, the off-quoting statistic is that by the time Marvel release a film which is not which is headed by either a woman or a person of colour they will have had 11 films headlined by white men called Chris <laughs> which is yeah because uh, Chris Pratt Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth are yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Um,
3: but I think it's definitely interesting that this hasn't been publicised I mean I don't know about in the States but definitely in the UK this has not been publicised anywhere near as much okay I don't watch Marvel comics or things like that but I know about Avengers I know about Iron Man I know about those sort of characters um, because you just pick it up and day to date stuff I did not know about Agent Carter until I was told by somebody in this room what it was
1: yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things to measure will be, so, I mean, a lot of us here binge-watched it. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, and that appears to be the way that modern TV is going. And so Marvel uh, have to deal with Netflix, and Daredevil was hugely successful, partly because people could binge-watch and choose their own pace. For it was a very violent show, which is actually a great advantage. The next Netflix series is Jessica Jones, who's Power Woman?
3: Oh, I wouldn't know. And I forget what her, <laughs>
1: to be her name is, but... They were,
3: it's not like a
0: battery
1: advert. <laughs> there are some terribly named heroes. Uh, the two gun kid may or may not make it into the can Avengers film. Textbook kid. Arm fall off boy, another real <laughs> hero whose superpower is his arms falling off. I kid you not. But How, it'll be how inter- is that a power? Because then you can pick up the arm and hit people with it. But the interesting question will be. Well, you can't if you just drop both your arms.
3: Yeah, why don't you and just. And <laughs> you
0: can hit them anyway, your arm's well, attached to unfair. your body. Can you choose which one?
1: Stay on target. <laughs> so. If part of the failing is potentially that networks in the UK didn't pick it up or that binge-watching is the way forward, given the power of Netflix, if Jessica Jones is of similar quality to Agent Carter and is much more successful because of format, is Agent Carter's low ratings a result of how it was released to the public rather than the fact that it's something headlined by a woman? Is it just that spies aren't cool at the moment? Well,
2: I think that's a really salient point, actually. Um, particularly, you know, we've had NSA leaks. The, yeah, exactly. We've had NSA leaks. We've had Bradley Manning. We've had Edward Snowden. Mm-hmm. Um, You've got the whole sort of Theresa May snooping charter. Yeah, would link
3: back into. That so kind of I, I, I
2: think that's a really salient point in that maybe oversaturation in the past, There's o- oversaturation, and the spies are deemed like, you know, the bad guys who are looking up all these hot you know, looking, looking at, our, up, Facebook looking at our Facebook pages, looking at our uh, webcams. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think, think... It's still not an
1: interesting film, cool. is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, because Marvel's villains are fundamentally safe. So, Age of Ultron, the villain is drone warfare. Um, Iron Man 3, the villain is terrorism. Um, <laughs> Captain America 2, the villain is also drone warfare. Guardians of the Galaxy, the religion is... The, the the villain is a religious fanatic, so their villains are very safe, and potentially that's a valid point in that they're trying to make a hero out of a spy. It used to be very trendy to put spies into Marvel comics. This is where Black Widow comes from,
0: well, and Nick, even the, Nick Fury. Yeah, um, so, so. and
1: even though Black Widow's gravitated to the main, well, main Marvel universe as a hero, she's in there as a villain turned hero. Her background's still one of evil, so mm-hmm. that's potentially a very valid point about spies aren't cool. But James Bond, like, Skyfall considered one of the greatest... Oh, James
3: Bond comes along once every five years yeah. for a two-hour show. And, and to be honest, I don't think many people go to see James Bond because it's a spy. They go to see James Bond because it's James Bond. And what what cool gadgets... and yeah. what Which cars is now happening with the Marvel
1: series, right? Yeah. You go see Marvel because well, yeah, it's yeah. a Marvel. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah, but I mean, that's also quite directed marketing, right? I mean, you know, you've got 18 months of solid James Bond posters everywhere yeah. before and a James Bond film comes out. Now, I'm sure that they could have done the same thing for uh, Agent Carter, but in a setting such as that, I mean, Agent Carter's relatively low budget, particularly compared to just about anything else Marvel does. You know, so at the same, you know, as soon as you're advertising it heavily, you're already exceeding the budget of the production in the first place. You know, so you're just literally placing a gamble on how much your marketing budget can get you.
2: I mean, I I think it will be interesting to see if now that the second series has been commissioned of Agent Carter, whether there's more um, publicity of it and a wider appeal for it, now that people know what it is about and have known about it. Just um, as it
3: slowly starts to spread.
1: Peggy Carter's a salient because the last time we really... I mean, Birds of Prey didn't run for very long, so our previous experience with this is the Wonder Woman series. But in very quick succession, we're getting Agent Carter again, Um, Supergirl's getting a series... Uh, who else? There's a lot more cropping up. Um, A.K.A. Jessica Jones. The CW are doing a cartoon series of Vixen. So we are getting a snowballing effect. It's just happening very slowly. It'd be interesting to see how they fare in comparison to Agent Carter. Yeah, I mean, is it just
0: that we're expecting the same response to something like, you know, as to something like the Avengers film? You know, in some way we're buying into that kind of response that perhaps even Marvel expected to have, right? I mean, you know, there's a very much kind of, direct investment, quick return idea, which is somewhat at odds with TV distribution.
1: Well, it's it's worth noting that, as far as Marvel were concerned, the whole shared universe thing was considered a huge risk. And Marvel made almost nothing off the superhero films of the 90s when they sold the right set, and when they made Iron Man, people were so worried it wasn't going to make any money that they had to persuade investors that if it bombed, they could have the film rights to anyone else who was in the Avengers, which is actually basically anyone in the Marvel Universe, so their plan was to turf off unpopular characters as collateral. But the extent to which Marvel are now super successful hides the fact that it was considered a real risk at the time. But now, of course, in that time they've been bought by Disney, who... There are internal Disney documents which have revealed that they, because they have the princess market sewn up, are completely uninterested in advertising superhero stuff to women and girls. Which would possibly explain this as well, because... If you look at the toy sets from Age of Ultron and so on, Black Widow and Scarlet Witch aren't in them, which is really weird given that you'd have thought that's half your audience market would want to buy those.
0: Well, it's an interesting thing. I I wonder whether it's that, almost by definition, they can experiment with the comics more. Because. Smaller fan base, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, a smaller fan base, but I mean, also, you know, if Marvel produce 100 different comics and one of them is slightly, you know, radical in some way, say Kamala Khan, right? You know, it gets an immediate headline response, just as Charlotte was saying. You know, and if it continues to sell, then they'll continue to write it. But if it doesn't, it's no great loss. Now, yeah. I
1: mean, TV, you're probably upping the budget a little bit. Well, Agent Carter was only eight episodes, so even on the scale of TV, that's relatively small. Well, by the scale of TV, but by yeah. the scale of a comic, it's still huge. Oh, yeah, it's still huge. Yeah. But comics have surprisingly low readerships. Hmm. Um especially compared to TV versions of things, this is one of the problems DC had with the Teen Titans in that their child fan base for the cartoon series was far bigger than the adult fan base who were buying the comic and yet the people writing the comic had almost no interest in catering to this new audience, which is why the Starfire comic didn't work.
0: Okay, um, we're going to finish up there. Um, just, as a, just as a reminder, we're now available on, on iTunes um, under the podcast Ooh. name. Um, you can tweet us at social underscore sci-fi or email us at socialsciencetalks at gmail.com. That may, um, that may need a recut. Y- yeah, yeah, put an underscore for the hesitation. Um, <laughs> okay, um, and it's conference week coming up, so uh, we'll hopefully have a show from the conference that's either going to be Starship Troopers or, or it perhaps may- a kind of melange of academic science fiction
1: geeks arguing over your beer but we'll see you next (laughs) month with hopefully something and uh, for those who are looking out for the frankenstein podcast because we mentioned it on twitter it is coming we had to delay it because peggy carter is cooler than victor frankenstein but uh, that will happen (laughs) i hope you enjoyed the program thanks very much Bye. bye